Turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. You're new with us. Welcome to Calvary. It's good to see you. Just to let you know, we are working our way through the, the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are in chapter 12. Now, as we said last week, at this point in John's Gospel, there are only a couple of days left before the crucifixion of Christ. And so Jesus now makes a final impassioned plea to the people of Israel and its leadership to receive him as their king. The rest of chapter 12 from verses 27 to 41 breaks down like this. The cross is looming, verses 27 through 36. Rebellion is reigning, verses 37 to 41. And judgment is coming, verses 42 to 50. Last week we looked at the first one. So this morning we want to look at our second main point, rebellion is reigning. Let's look at verse 37. But all the, although he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, last week we saw the Lord Jesus issue a last call to the nation to receive him as Messiah and Savior before it was too late. And yet in verses 37 to 41, we learn that it was already too late for many of them, especially the religious leaders of Israel. They had passed the point of what some have called the point, spiritual point of no return. The day of grace for them had come to an end. The opportunity to be saved was over. Their eternal judgment was sealed. It reminds us very much of the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 8.20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The offer of salvation is, is available to every man, woman, and young person on planet Earth. But it won't last forever. It has an expiration date attached to it. You ask, well, when? Uh, how long before the offer of salvation is no longer valid? Well, I can't answer that for every person is different. Here in John 12, this was their last call, their last call. Well, and since tomorrow wasn't promised to anybody, it could be your last call as well. Remember we talked last week, and I'll read you. Uh, we won't have time to turn to all these, but you can write most of them down. But um, we looked at Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8, which says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear God's voice talking to your heart about getting right with him, receiving Jesus, do not harden your hearts couple that with second corinthians 6 verse 2 for he says god said in an acceptable time i have heard you in the and in the day of salvation i have helped you behold now is the accepted time behold now is the day of salvation the day of salvation is that period of time in a person's life where they still have the opportunity to receive jesus and be saved a time when God's offer of salvation is still a reality, still active and valid. It's a period of time that is unique 
in each person's life, a period of time that only God knows the length of for their life. However, we do know this. Every time a person rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior, it becomes easier to reject Him the next time the gospel is presented to them. And so the second time a person rejects Christ is easier than the first time, and the third time becomes easier than the second time, and on and on it goes. This, con this continues until a person's heart becomes so hard from saying no to Jesus that they eventually pass the spiritual point of no return, which means at that point there is no turning back and receiving Jesus as your Savior. The opportunity is gone. The offer of salvation has been withdrawn. Once they pass the spiritual point of no return in their life, and again, it's different for every person, it now becomes impossible for them to believe. As I said a minute ago, once they pass this point of no return, this spiritual point, the day of grace is coming to an end, the opportunity to be saved is over, their eternal judgment is sealed. It's called committing the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let me draw your attention to our text this morning and I'll explain what I mean. In particular, I want to draw your attention to verses 37 and 39. Let me read them again. Verse 37, Jesus said, but it says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Verse 39, Therefore they could not believe. When verse 37 says they did not believe in him, it is really saying they would not believe in him. John tells us the problem wasn't that Jesus hadn't given them ample evidence to believe over the course of his ministry. He had performed even numerous miracles to prove his claim that he was sent from the Father and that he himself was God incarnate, the great I am. We've talked about this uh, from John's gospel so far. So it wasn't that Jesus hadn't given them ample evidence um, to believe in him. The problem was they refused to believe. They hardened their hearts, right? And uh, didn't care what Jesus did, what he said. They had purposed. They were not going to believe in him. Now, before we go any further, let me break verses 37 through 41 down using a simple outline. Verses 37 and 38, the offer of salvation rejected. And then verses 39 to 41, the offer of salvation rescinded. Again, verse 37. But although he had done so many signs, the Greek word is miracles. Though he had done so many miracles before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which, was, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When John says that Jesus had done so many miracles before them, it means in, in their presence. He had done many miracles in their presence. But when John says that he had done so many miracles before them, he was, of course, talking about how Jesus had preached the gospel many times, confirming his words as coming from the Father through the miracles he performed. This was very common uh, in Jesus' ministry to say, look, don't believe my testimony of who I am. Uh, the Father sent me. He bears witness of me, right? Three times in the Gospels. Uh, you know, once when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, once on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and then again, last week we looked at verses 35 uh, and 6. 
the Father spoke from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son. Hear him, right? And, and so on, validating the ministry of Jesus verbally from heaven, but throughout the course of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, the Father affirmed that Jesus Christ was his Son, sent from the Father to this world to give them a message from the Father about how they could be saved. Uh, judgment was coming. And God loved the whole world so much he wanted to spare those from being judged if they would come to his son. Jesus said, I have been speaking to you for three and a half years uh, the words of my father. If you don't believe what I say, believe the works that I've done. They bear witness. John 10, 25. Jesus said to the Pharisees and all, I told you who I am. You don't believe me. The works of the miracles that I do in my father's name they bear witness of me. They confirm my ministry. He's going to say in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, to his disciples in the upper room the night before the cross, he said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me, for the sake of the works, the miracles themselves. When John began verse 37 with the words, but although, it connects what comes next, what had just come before. And what had just come before, Jesus issues a last call to the people of Israel to believe in him, to receive him. In verse 35, we read last week, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The light, of course, is a reference to God's truth. But truth as embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, who would go on to say in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the light of God who came into a world of darkness, a world filled, of, filled with Satan's lies and deceptions. That's the idea, spiritual darkness. Jesus came into a world of darkness to light fallen man's way back to God. That darkness is, was imposed on the human race in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, their fellowship with God was broken. They fell. They were separated from God. Satan became the earth's new owner, man's new master. And of course, he has filled this earth with darkness, with spiritual lies and deceptions designed to keep people away from God's truth, his light, primarily Jesus Christ, who again is the embodiment of God's truth. He's the true light, as John says here, as John is talking about how Jesus came into a world of darkness to light fallen man's way back to God. John introduced this whole concept to begin his gospel. He said in chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus was the true light. There's a lot of so-called lights out there, right? Every cult in the world says, we have the light. No, it's not God's light. You're calling it light. It's darkness masquerading as light. But Jesus was the true light, which gives light to every man, every woman coming into the world. Calling Jesus the true light, John was saying that Jesus was the embodiment of God's truth. He was the incarnate Word of God. Again, in chapter 1, verse 1, it starts off, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is a title for Christ. If you don't believe that, check out Revelation 19. It clearly calls Jesus the Word, right? So Jesus was in the beginning with God. He is God, right? In the, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? He came into a world of darkness. He is the true light, the embodiment of light and God's truth, God's word incarnate, right? So Jesus came into this world of darkness as the light of God. This light alone could save people, but only if they embraced the light, which meant only if they believed in and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But sadly, as John continues his introduction of Jesus coming into the world, he goes on to say in John chapter 1, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Well, that was John 1, verse 3. All things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made, right? So John's continuing that idea. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, Israel, the Jewish people, and they didn't receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, to those who embrace the light, who love the light, who receive Jesus as the light, the truth of God, which alone could light their way back to God, save them. Now, with all that in mind, guys, let's read verses 35 and 6 again and then connect them with verse 37. So verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons, daughters of light, that you might be saved, verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. In other words, what John is saying is Jesus had preached the gospel to these people. And I'm thinking primarily what is in view is the Jewish leaders of Israel. All right? Uh, but they weren't alone. A lot of other Jews had rejected Christ as Messiah. Okay? But um, I think what John is saying is that Jesus had preached the gospel to these people many, many times over the, over the course of his three and a half year ministry. Often, as we said, performing miracles to validate that he had come from God the Father and that he spoke on behalf of the Father. But even though Jesus had offered them so many opportunities to be saved, they rejected God's light in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and the truth that Jesus spoke to them, primarily the gospel, which could save them. The problem was hard-hearted unbelief rooted in rebellion. Now, this was similar to what was going on in Isaiah's day. That's why John quotes Isaiah and actually says this was a prophecy. See, during Isaiah's day, the people of Israel had gotten very wicked. God had sent numerous prophets to, uh, to plead with them to repent before judgment had to come. Uh, of course, they killed all the prophets. They wound up killing Isaiah too. Tradition says they stuck him inside a hollowed-out log and then cut him in two. 
So, so they didn't want to... They didn't want to hear God's truth. God kept reaching out to them, kept pleading with them, please turn from your sin. Read Ezekiel 18. Turn, please turn from your sin. I don't want to bring judgment. Why would you have to die? I don't want to judge you. I don't want to destroy you. Please turn to me and repent and be saved. But they wouldn't hear. They wouldn't hear. And so John actually quotes Isaiah in verse 38 and says that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. It was a prophecy, even though it was going on in Isaiah's time. Check out Isaiah 53, verse 1. This is where this is quoted from. That the, that the words of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, nobody's listening, Lord. To whom am I talking? I mean, nobody's listening to me. Something like Jeremiah who preached for 46 years. Nobody ever got saved. Nobody listened. It's called the weeping prophet because he kept weeping. The people kept rejecting. He knew what was coming. God told him. Babylonians are going to come and destroy Israel. It wasn't easy being a prophet in those days. It's not easy being a prophet in these days, uh, which means just sharing the word of God. People don't want to hear it for the most part. But the same rebellion... To the word of God in Isaiah's day was now reigning. That's what we've called this rebellion is reigning, this this, uh, point. The same rebellion to the word of God in Isaiah's day was now reigning in Israel against the word of God made flesh standing right in front of them, Jesus Christ. One pastor said Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ was the culmination of years of rebellion, misused, uh, misused privileges, and forsaking of divine truth. The terrible result was that when the truth came in the person of Jesus Christ, by this time many were too hard. Uh, their hearts were too hard and they could not believe. Thinking they could see, we, we have all the light we need. They were really, in reality, spiritually blind, unquote. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, how, how could the leaders of Israel reject Jesus? I mean, his miracles proved he was sent from God. Well, it is true that the leaders of Israel couldn't deny the reality of Jesus' miracles. They couldn't deny it. I mean, people were getting raised from the dead, you know. People were getting healed of leprosy. And so you, they just couldn't deny the reality of the miracles. So they did the next best thing, and they denied the origin or the source of those miracles. You know, Jesus had claimed over and over again that the miracles he did, he did from the Father through the Holy Spirit. The leaders of Israel said, no, they were from the devil. If you turn to Matthew 12 real quick, I want to read to you this little exchange. Matthew 12, and then keep your finger here because we're going to come back to it. But in Matthew 12, verses 22 to 24, we read, Then one was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So here we see the animosity on the part of the Pharisees starting to come to a head. This is around the middle of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 12, of course, John 12, at the very end, right before the cross, right? 
But here we see the animosity of the Pharisees beginning to build now. When Jesus healed this blind and mute demon-possessed man, the crowds began to think seriously that he might be the son of David. That was a messianic term. What they were saying is, he might be the Messiah. When the Pharisees heard this, they flew into a rage and made an outrageous accusation against Jesus that his miracles weren't being done by the power of God, but by the power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a pagan deity considered to be the prince of demons, or in other words, Satan himself. Now at this point in Jesus' ministry, it was still possible for the Pharisees to believe in Jesus and be saved. The problem was they refused to believe. And so we saw our first point, the offer of salvation rejected, brings us to our second point, the offer of salvation rescinded. And of course, the dictionary defines rescind as to abrogate, annul, revoke, repeal, or to invalidate. Let's pick it up in verse 39. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. By the time we get to the end of John 12, as I said, there's only a couple days left before the cross. By the time we get there, we read in verse 39. Now, earlier, Matthew 12, around the middle of Jesus' ministry, they were really starting to harden their hearts, but it was still possible at that point for them to believe. But now by the time we get to the end of John 12 and the end of his public ministry before the cross, we read in verse 39, they could not believe. The Pharisees, probably the scribes and the other religious leaders of Israel as well, even though the Pharisees are singled out here, that they could not believe. At this point, they had passed the spiritual point of no return and no longer, listen, had the capacity to believe. Actually, what happens is that in the face of a person's continual rebellion and rejection of God's offer of salvation, well, their heart becomes harder and harder until at one point God honors their decision to reject His Son and He steps in and makes their heart like concrete. He hardens it all the more. Remember Pharaoh? And God said to Pharaoh, you know, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And every time he did and Pharaoh refused, God brought a plague, right? Ten and all. And uh, every time God brought a plague, which was designed to cause Pharaoh to capitulate and go ahead and let God's people go, it says he hardened his heart. God brought another plague. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God brought another plague. We read Pharaoh hardened his heart. Until the last time we read in Exodus 8.32, after one particular plague, it says again, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. You get into chapter 9, God brings another plague, and we read, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Hebrew word means to make firm. In other words, Pharaoh had hardened his heart. He had made his decision. God kept trying to get him to repent through each of these judgments. That any time if Pharaoh said, I give up, your God is God. I repent. I want to follow him. God would have stopped the, the judgments and taken his people and so on, right? 
But Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. God said, if that's the way you want it, if that's your decision, that's your will, I'm going to step in. I'm going to harden your heart a little. I'm making it like concrete. Because either I'm going to get glory from your life, Pharaoh, by you kneeling before me, repenting of your sin, and coming to me as my servant so I can lift you up and show the world through you. You're a powerful guy. People will look at your life. They'll listen to your message, your testimony. If you come to me and humble yourself and believe in me as the God of Israel, I'll be your God. And I will get glory from your life by showing people how that when a person bends the knee to me and receives me as their king, I will bless them, I will take care of them, and so on. But Pharaoh, you've hardened your heart. And so now I'm going to get glory from your life the other way. I'm going to use you now as a hard-hearted, obstinate unbeliever, rebellious. And I'm going to show people what happens to a, a person's life who lives like that. What does the Bible say? Um, it's hard to strive with your maker, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to go against God. As Jesus put it to Saul of Tarsus, it's hard to kick against the goats, isn't it? You're not going to win that battle. Jacob tried. He'd wrestle with God all night. Didn't work out so well. You could keep wrestling with God. I don't know what it might be. But God loves you too much to let you keep going in rebellion. If he has to, he'll take your physical health away like he did Jacob. He crippled it. So that Jacob was forced to bow. Can God do that? He'll do it if in the end you'll receive Christ. Yeah, whatever it takes to get you saved, he loves you. But if you're never going to bend the knee to Christ, if you're never going to soften your heart and receive Christ, then what God will do is he'll get glory from your life the other way. Remember the, you know, whatever, you know, with a big circle and red line through it, that'll be your life. This is your life, the big red circle with a line through it. Folks, look at this guy, or look, look at this gal. Look at the life they're living, the problems, the consequences. Do you want that life? Well, no, Lord. Then come to me. Okay, they wouldn't, they refuse, but you come to me and receive my son. And, 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 and I'll use you, I'll lift you up as an object lesson for good. So, in the face of a person's continual rejection of God's offer of salvation, their heart becomes harder and harder, harder until at one point God says, fine, if that's what you want, I'm going to harden your heart like concrete, and, and, and that'll be it. Simultaneous with this judicial hardening, the author of, offer of salvation is withdrawn, and God removes whatever light he had given them, and they are left to grope in spiritual darkness forever. Look, God gives us his light, his truth. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's a revelation of himself to us, right? People that love it, embrace it, God will give them more light, enough to be saved. However, if they reject the light, if they don't love the light, they mock the truth, and you know, People everywhere like that, they mock the Bible, they mock you as a Christian, they think you're stupid, you're Bible-thumping, ignorant weirdos, and that kind of thing. Well, if you love, they love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil, God says, then fine. I'll take the light, and you can have the darkness. I've shared this with you before. Let me share it again, because it goes along with this topic, okay? A true story, okay? It says, during World War II... An American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. 
Six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets, but while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from attack. Without lights on the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land. They made a radio request for the lights to be turned on just long enough for them to come in, but because the entire the entire carrier with its several thousand men would have, been, would have been put in jeopardy. No lights were permitted. When the six planes ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing water of the North Atlantic and all crew members perished into eternity, end quote. And folks, I bring that up because God also reaches a point when he turns out the lights, quote unquote, in a hard-hearted person's life. And the opportunity for salvation is then gone forever. And they too perish into eternity. It is a serious thing to hear God's word spoken and dismiss it out of hand. Because now you've heard it. Now you're held accountable by God to live it. And the more you listen and the more you just don't do anything about it, don't receive Christ. Uh, I have had people that have sat in church for years that have never received Christ. Why they keep coming back, I'm not sure. But I cringe. Because, Lord, the more truth they receive, the more they're going to be held accountable for the day of judgment. Those That servant who knew his master's will and do not, did not do it will be beaten with many stripes, Jesus said. That servant that didn't know his master's will and didn't do it, beaten with a few stripes. Talk about punishment in hell. That's why Jesus said, in Luke 8, 18, he said, Therefore, take heed, listen, how you hear. What does that mean? If you're going to hear the word of God, you better do it with an open heart, an open mind. You better do it seriously. And when you hear it, you better take it to heart and have every intention to act upon it. Because if you hear it with a cavalier attitude and you're mocking it, in your heart, you're rejecting it out of hand. You're laughing at God's word. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. In other words, whatever light God has given you that you embrace. I just had a gentleman here, first service, just started coming. Because he's interested. And, and it's he's serious. He told me how he, he just loves to get into the Bible. He likes to ask questions. I said, you are being faithful to the light that God has given you. And the more faithful you are, the more you embrace it, the more God's going to give you light. And that eventually, hopefully, you'll receive Christ and be saved. He's a seeker right now, okay? But the person who has some light, you know, maybe they grew up in church, went to Awanas or Sunday school, and, and now they begin to mock the light. God says, well, if you don't love the light, at one point, I'm going to take it from you. Again, you love darkness rather than light. You don't deserve the light. And God will take it from them. That's why Jesus said uh, in Luke 8, 18, Therefore take heed how you hear. For whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Again, John 12, 36, Jesus said, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, When a person starts to resist the light of God, something begins to change within him or her. And he comes to the place where he cannot believe. 
This is, a, this is a judicial blindness that God permits to come over the eyes of people who do not take God's truth seriously. Read again John 12, 40. It is a serious thing to treat God's word lightly, God's truth. For a person could well miss the opportunity to be saved. He quotes Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, end quote. And once again, by the time we get to the end of John 12, we read in verse 39 with regard to the Pharisees, but probably all the leaders of Israel for the most part, that they could not believe. They could not believe. Earlier in his ministry, he had warned them not to harden their hearts any longer because they might come to a place where they could no longer believe. And they, we had come to that place by the time we come to John 12, 39. Again, it's called committing the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it comes out of Matthew 12. So if you move from there, go back to Matthew 12. And let's pick it up in verse 31. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit, Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Guys, the word therefore at the beginning of verse 31 tells us that what comes next is connected to what Jesus had just finished saying. Or in other words, the term blasphemy against the Holy Spirit comes on the heels of what the Pharisees said in verse 24. This man casts out demons by Satan and not by the power of God. Now look, to understand why Jesus connected their accusation of his power coming from the devil with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you need to understand that the works that Jesus did while on the earth were all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus could have worked miracles himself. He's God. But he availed himself to the same power available to all of us, us as his people, right? And so he only limited himself to the Father's will with the miracles he did, and then only then through the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to turn to these. But in Luke 3, verses 21 and 22, it's talking about when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. It says, and there were others too were baptized. And when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. We talked about this. This was the first time the father spoke from heaven, validating the son's ministry. Second time, Mount of Transfiguration, Third time, John 12. Then we read, after Jesus was baptized, in Luke 4.14, then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, which means as he was traveling north to the Galilee, he was traveling through towns, and while he was doing that, he was healing the sick, casting out demons, working all kinds of different uh, miracles and healings and so on, uh, so on. And it says that, and news of him went through all the surrounding region. Again, I want you to see that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit 
is targeted at the miracles the Holy Spirit did to validate the ministry of Christ. Look, to fully understand, and I, I, we're not going to spend any time really, just, uh, just a few more minutes, you have a working knowledge of what's going on, okay? To fully understand what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, we need to understand what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. Let me give you two uh, verses out of uh, John's uh, gospel, John 15 and John 16, uh, three verses in all. In John 15, 26, Jesus says to his disciples, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, listen, he will testify of me. John 16, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Listen, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus, to bear witness to the people of this world that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. You have to understand, though, that this is the Spirit's ministry, to draw attention to Jesus, not to himself. These ultra-charismatic churches that you go to, hopefully you don't, but if you've ever been to one, I mean, it's, the Holy Spirit is front and center. He is the focus of everything. It's all they ever talk about is the Holy Spirit. That grieves the Spirit, because his whole ministry is to point people to Christ, to be saved, and once they get saved, to keep drawing them to Christ, Second. Corinthians 3.18, that they would become more and more like Jesus. He does not want to be in the spotlight. He does not want to be, you know, the focus. He's always pointing people to Jesus. His whole ministry is the bear witness of Jesus to the people of this world. And he will do that primarily through the preaching of the gospel, as you preach the gospel to people. But know this. He primarily will do this through the preaching of the gospel. Listen, using the changed lives of God's people that have been saved as a testimony. Look, people can argue with your doctrine. They can't argue with a transformed life. Right? People argue doctrine all the time. But if they see you as a person who was delivered from alcohol or drugs or pornography or a violent temper or whatever it might be, so you talk about Jesus, and then, of course, if they knew you before, it's a real powerful testimony. You're talking about how Jesus has changed your life, and they're looking at you, and they know your life has been radically transformed. That's what the Spirit does often to bring people to Christ, right? Yes, through the preaching of the gospel, but through the preaching of the gospel connected to a changed life is the idea. How that these folks were set free from their own personal demons and transform by the saving power of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, as we're seeing here in John 12, the Holy Spirit might use a miracle of some kind to get a hold of their heart and to show them that Jesus is the Son of God who died for their sins, who loves them and wants to save them. But if they resist the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life, well, they begin down a path that will eventually lead, if they don't repent, to the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which, guys, don't miss this, isn't any one sin. It is a process that leads to a destination, a conclusion, which is eternal damnation. 
as we just said, uh, committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the, is the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. Well, how, how is that possible? Because it's rejecting Jesus as your Savior. He's the only one that can forgive us our sins. That's why it's unpardonable, because you reject the one who alone shed his blood to pay for your sins. But it isn't any one sin. It is a process where you keep saying no to Jesus, no to Jesus. And this might go on for years. Until finally you pass that spiritual point of no return, and your eternal destiny is sealed. But again, it's a process where a person says no to Jesus as the Spirit is bearing witness to their heart. Their heart becomes harder and harder. And uh, at one point, it's not that they will not believe anymore. It's now they can't believe. They cannot believe. Again, John 12, 39. And just so you know this, this is a sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is a sin that can only be committed by an unbeliever. A Christian, a true Christian, cannot commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Over the course of my ministry, at various points I've had one or two sticks out in my mind. Uh, a person call me, and they're hysterical. What's wrong? What's wrong? Calm down. What's wrong? I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'm lost. I'm doomed. No, you haven't. What do you mean, no, I haven't? I know I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm going to hell. No, you're not. What do you keep saying that? How do you know I'm not? I haven't committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because you're worried about it. You're worried about it. If you had really hardened your heart so much over the course of years that you know that God stepped in and made it like concrete, you could care less about the things of God. You could care less about hell. You don't even believe it. No, the fact that you're worried about it means you haven't committed it. And if you're a true Christian, you can't. Because I believe if you're really saved, you're saved forever. So I don't know what you sin you committed that you think now devil, the devil is, you know, punched you in the spiritual solar plexus to knock the wind out of you thinking, I'm gone, I'm lost. I don't know what sin you committed. Get it right with God, but you haven't committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, excuse me, I got some work I got to take, take care of, right? No, it's a, my heart goes out to them. The devil's vicious. He can't steal your salvation, he'll, so he'll try to steal the, the assurance of your salvation. Definitely the joy of your salvation, right? But again, this is a sin that cannot be committed by a Christian, only by an unbeliever. It gets a process. It's not any one sin. And remember, the, the judicial hardness that God imposes on a person's heart is never his first choice for them. Hardening a person's heart so that all hope of salvation is gone for them. That's never God's first choice. That, that comes years down the road after they have hardened their heart to Jesus hundreds of times probably, maybe thousands of times. No, God's first choice is to save them. 1 Timothy 2.4, God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, all people, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would receive everlasting life and not perish in hell. 
Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise? The promise of coming judgment. It's not that he is not serious about that. It's just that he loves people and doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And so as Peter said, he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why he delays. He delays. He's wanting to give a person every opportunity to repent and get saved, right? On this subject, I'd like to sum it up with one of our Calvary pastors, what he said. He put it this way. He said, and I quote, What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is when you come to the wrong conclusion that the reason miracles are happening, people are changing, and the mute are speaking is due to some kind of hypnotism, demonic activity, or mental delusion. And you begin to blaspheme what the Spirit speaks in your heart when he says, no, it's real, it's Jesus. That's why their life is changing. This miracle is from God. But you reject it. If you ignore the Spirit's voice in your heart and say, uh, those people at Calvary Chapel are being brainwashed. Those believers are under some kind of delusion. There comes a point where you will have said no one too many times to the Holy Spirit. There comes a point when the unpardonable sin has been committed. What does this mean? It means the Holy Spirit will no longer speak to you. You see, in Genesis chapter 6, God declared, My spirit shall not always strive with man. He's not always going to speak to you about your need for salvation. Therefore, if you keep saying, ah, those people are just being emotional. They just imagine they hear from God. They're off the wall. Well, eventually, you will commit the blasphemy of the Spirit, and you will be damned. You can only hear the message and see the miracle so many times before God will finally say, okay, have it your way. You don't want to acknowledge my reality very well. My Spirit will no longer speak to you. And then you're lost. At that point, you not only will not believe, at that point, you cannot believe. In Jeremiah 7, verse 16, God said to Jeremiah, Don't pray any longer for this people. There is no longer any hope for them. There comes a time we know not when, and a place we know not where, when a man's fate is sealed and any hope for salvation is gone. You can't play games when the Spirit of God is drawing you to Jesus Christ, end quote. Folks, just by virtue of the fact that you're here in church this Sunday, and just by virtue of the fact that many are watching online, live streaming, well, I, I think it's a safe bet. I could be wrong. I think it's a safe bet. It indicates you're not yet too far gone. If you haven't yet received Christ, it indicates you're not too far gone. Uh, there's still time for you to receive Christ. But don't push it. Don't push it. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you hear God speak into your heart, don't harden your heart any longer. This might be the last chance you ever get. This might be God's last call in your life. Can I encourage you? To not leave this room before making peace with God, but before receiving Jesus as your Savior. And I'd like to have you all stand. And I will lead everyone this morning in what we call the sinner's prayer. 
course, if you've received Jesus, you've already been here. You don't have to get saved again. Okay, it's not for you. But you can pray for those who might be here or watching online who haven't yet received Jesus. All right? So let's pray. Father, I know that, Lord Jesus, you have come from the Father. I know, Lord Jesus, that you are God. I know, Lord Jesus, that you died for my sins. And Lord, right now, I repent of the sins I have committed. Lord Jesus, right now, I receive you into my heart as my Lord and Savior. I ask you, Lord, to fill me with your Holy Spirit. And give me strength to live for you from this moment on. Strength to tell others about you. And Lord, I thank you for giving me eternal life. And I just praise you. And, and from this moment on, I want to bow the knee to you as my king. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. And so, if anyone here this morning has prayed that prayer, please come up here so we can talk with you and give you a Bible if you need one. If you are watching online, if you don't have... Uh, people around you that are Christians, call the church line uh, from our website, and we'd be happy to get back to you and talk to you. So uh, may God bless in these last days, whatever time is left, his people to go out there and be a force for him, a light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. At one point he said, now you are the light of the world. Go out there and let your light so shine. Right? Let your light so, not a little bit, so shine. That people can see your life transformed and say, I want that. I want what they have. That's real. I don't, I don't have that. I got church. I don't have what they got. Because what you got is Jesus, right? It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. May God give us grace.